thanks to viewers and listeners. I want to tell you that as a host of now uh, 88 Bookstu shows, one of the biggest thrills is to have authors come on to the show more than once, because that means A, they like me enough to come on the show multiple times, and B, they're publishing, and they're getting published, and they have multiple books. And uh, one author who strikes me as the most, I don't know if I can use shapeshifter, creative, the person who I know who has done the most different things with her life is joining us again today. And I'd like to welcome Marsha Butler, who will tell us all about her new novel, which is called Oslo, Maine. But also, I'm very curious about why she's not speaking to us from New York City, which was the setting of her prior novel, Pickle's Progress. But here she is, or there she is, in Santa Fe. Welcome, Marcia. Thank you, Eileen. It's a great pleasure to be back. Thrilled to be back with you. Thanks. So let's start with <laughs> your retreat from New York, or instead of, that sounds defeatist. Let's, sound, uh, let's start with your new life phase in Santa Fe's New Mexico, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Yeah, I love it here. Okay, so I was in New York City for 46 years. That's a long time, right? And I, I love New York. It's, there's no, no other city like New York. But the last couple of years I had been feeling, uh, you know, I think I'm done. I, I, I don't want to walk on concrete all the time. And in 2017, I had come to Santa Fe to, uh, to do a book tour for my memoir. Right. And so I was here. I'd never been here before. I, I, um, I was here for only 48 hours. And uh, the person who was hosting me there, you know, drove me around the next day. And I just, I stepped onto the plane to go back to New York City saying I could live here. Uh, you know, if it wasn't Paris, if it wasn't Amsterdam, I could live here. Uh, but I just kept it in my mind. It didn't, didn't really make plans at the time. But last year in 2019, within one month, I decided I'm moving, put my apartment on the market, blah, 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 and got here the week before COVID started. So have you so ever been anywhere else where you felt that feet on the ground, I could live here? I mean, yes, you mentioned Paris. And I mean, other than like exotic locales that everyone would maybe like to visit, but you pulled up stakes and and decided to live there after a very short time of exploring it what was it that drew you to santa fe well it's have you been to santa fe no okay you gotta come okay uh, i'll show you a good time santa fe and new mexico is it's just astonishingly beautiful santa fe is a small city it's the capital uh the architecture is all adobe um which i like and this you know, the, the skies are blue, big sky every single day. Temperatures are moderate. It's a high desert. We're up 7,000 feet. And when you drive in any direction for 10 minutes, the scenery is just incredible. And it's all different, right? It's not like the state has one generic type of, you know, look. I it is literally the land of enchantment. It's absolutely stunningly beautiful. And I was ready for a change of beauty, I think, 
you so, know. And so you, now you are like a walking license plate for, because <laughs> I think their license plate says Land of Enchant. <laughs> And it really is. I mean, I've been to some astonishing places during the last year or day trips, just getting out of Dodge and, you know, uh, trying to get out. In the, but it's beautiful. I have no regrets. Absolutely no regrets. It was time. You look really happy. But now I'm going to pull you back to the East Coast. Let's talk about your new novel, Oslo, Maine. So mm -hmm. knowing, you know, having read your two prior books, um, one a memoir and one your first novel that's all very New York-y and set in New York and things happen in New York. Now here we are in rural Maine and we're not even on the seacoast, which most people are familiar with. We're kind of uh, in the woods in Maine. What, um, and you also you know, invented a fictional Maine town, but as we look at the book cover, the um, signage that you put on the book cover is familiar to anyone who loves Maine, and I have to brag that I have been to Norway, Poland, and Peru out of all those towns that are listed on the sign. What, um, what happened in Maine that kicked off your imagination? Well, Maine is one of my favorite states. When I was an oboist, I played for many seasons um, at a chamber music festival in central Maine about it's about an hour and a half from portland it's up and west and um you know i went back many seasons just for one week and she, this woman who ran the festival was a violist uh there and she played in the portland symphony and she had me back many seasons and i absolutely loved it and of course i was on the lookout for moose all the time when i was there and i heard mainers all have crazy stories about you know bad stories about moose, miraculous stories about moose, funny stories about moose. I became obsessed with moose. And I, I love the state. I love the people. I loved playing there. It was kind of like a golden week. I would just go up and I'd have this wonderful host who would host me. And I just got in the pocket of Maine, you know. And um, so one, the, the head of the festival basically told me this story that happened to her with a moose. Wait, wait, and, wait. This is oh, based on a true story? No, none of it is true. Well, okay, so the, the plot is not a true story at all. It is totally <laughs> my imagination. But there is one inciting incident in the book, which is a vague version of this situation that the head of the festival told me about way back in the day, many years ago, and I always remembered it. And I just thought, like, it was too weird to be true. And, um, you know, she told me all these details of what happened with the moose and all the stuff. And I just thought, like, my God, you know, this is just incredible. And then I started getting obsessed with moose and I was YouTube <laughs> documentary. Oh, my God. And went down a big wormhole with moose all these years. So I've, I've revered moose all these years and I remembered the story. And so I packed the plot around a version of it. It's not an exact version by any means because, you know, it sort of morphed as I wrote. So that was what was going on with that. That's, so that's how I... It's really um, one of the first... It has to be the only novel whose perspective is first uh, started with the thoughts, the interior thoughts of a moose who's um, pregnant and about to give birth. So you transitioned to the humans, 
but somehow as as a reader i stayed very connected to the moose and i think st starting the novel <laughs> in a moose's brain is a very very creative um, way to begin but i i wanted to say that having read um, all three of your books, that I noticed a common strain between them, that in each of them, including your own life and your memoir, each starts off with kind of a tragedy or an uncomfortable situation and a, and a kind of a startling and surprising situation. And then um, the entire book is, you know, how the, the, the initial starting conflict almost becomes secondary to how the characters themselves deal with what happened. And then, in the end, you have resolutions that are remarkably satisfying. So I have noticed that, and that, to me, extends even to your own life, where you, know, you did not have a happy childhood, and yet you evolved to be a musician, uh, an interior designer, someone who created films, a uh, film on creativity, to an author. So um, do you feel, is that just me or is that something you kind of noticed about your own writing? Uh, you mean about the structure of starting off with something? Yeah. Um, well, I'm always thinking about architecture in writing, in music, and even in interiors. Um, and I'm very aware of pacing in general in what I do. Um, I'm thinking always about rhythm, right? So, I mean, it's it's a natural instinct to start a, start a story with something that is, is going to lock a reader in, not in a manipulative way, but I guess what I was doing in Oslo was, is I wanted, well, the idea of putting it, uh, the moose does have a point of view throughout and we start the prologue with the moose. And so there is a, there's a big scene in the beginning, which with what happens to the moose has collateral effect and damage to every single person in the book. Right? So she's in everybody's life no matter what they know it, like it, or want it. She ha is in influencing everything on a macro level and a micro level. So to start off with that, I, I mean, I'm just aware that I want the stakes to be deep right in the beginning. I want people to care about what's going on immediately. You know, I could talk about the horizon for five five pages, you know, and, and many great writers have, mind you, I'm perhaps not that clever, but, um, you know, I'm just aware of pacing and, and drawing the reader in from the beginning. And it's very important to me, you know, like why read on, you know, you want a reason to turn those pages. And again, not in a manipulative way, but in a, an organic way that's like, oh, this moose, this thing happened to her what what's going to happen next and how is it going to proceed so i'm aware of that and you know it's it's i guess it's 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 infused from yeah my my experience in the arts in general it's kind of the stakes there have to be stakes in anything that you do in an artistic uh endeavor i think it can never be passive in a way unless it's purposely passive with regard to rhythm so that's my, I hope that answers your question. Well, I also think when you think of music, you know, there has to be something at the beginning of any piece, song, 
that kind of that draws you in or else I mean if the beginning is is boring you're not going to stick around to listen to the middle and the end um, but I also noticed that with Pickles Progress your first novel and Oslo you've got these kind of vast areas so you've got New York City which you know couldn't get vaster and then you've got the main woods which are very large you've got a small town but it's you know it's a large area and then you zoom in on a few characters in Pickles Progress it's like two families and an outsider in Oslo it's three families and of course the moose and I like how you kind of you you're starting at a big place but you're really only concerned through the rest of the novel once you know the setting with this small group of characters right yeah it's about I think it's about uh, flexing the lens um, you know, so we know we're in the woods of Maine. It's a small town, but yes, Maine is uh, sparsely populated. Mostly, of, mostly it's downstate, but you know, it is vast when you get up into Upper Maine, which is you know, this is Central Maine more or less. And there's a lot of little towns dotted around. Um, but for the characters, I'm I'm really interested in in my writing in general of exploring uh, the depth of interiority of these characters, which, you know, can can fluctuate from they're doing real bad things and, and yet have a heart of gold, we assume. And then there's people who are just at the, at the mercy of other people's actions, right? And so for me, interesting characters is this, this moving of the lens. And so I'd like to go very interior and then pull them out. Um, I think this is a natural, it's kind of an inspection in a way of human nature. And I don't know any of these people. They're not, they're not familiar to me at all, uh, you know, when I'm writing them, but I want to get to know them. And I do this by fleshing out what their nature is, how they operate in the world, you know, who they love, who they resent, who they don't care for, who they purposely want to harm for whatever reason. And um, this is what's really interesting for me about writing. And so I think all of my novel, both of my novels have been deep dives into particular, uh, particular ways that people operate in the world and their flaws, you know, everything, all the, all the bells and whistles of, of people, because that's who the, we are really. I mean, everybody's incredibly complex. But I, I, think wanna... I think there is also a strain of, I know that there are a lot of readers who don't like to read books where they have uh, uncertain narrators or unlikable characters, which I never agreed with. I mean, I think if you don't have any unlikable characters, we're just going to be reading Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm over and over again. But I think um, not to be give away spoilers, both your novels have really beautiful arcs of redemption. Um, so that you can follow the progress of the characters as they as they Im grow and improve. But let's make that the lead into a reading I'm going to ask you to do. Um, so I think you'll have to, other than the moose, you'll have to do some setup uh, as to who's speaking and uh, at what stage this character, the main character that we're talking about here, Pierre, is in. Right. Oh, great. So, yes, the setup for this is this happens towards the end of the book. Now, Pierre Roy 
is my little 12 year old. Uh, he's one of the, he's one of the main characters. I say he's, he's right after the moose, I'd say, you know, the moose is very big and Pierre is very big. Pierre has been in an accident, which has caused him to have a strange memory loss. And all the adults around him are trying to help him and failing. He's a very brilliant little boy. He is studying the violin with Sandra Kimbrough, who's one of the other families in, in this novel. And um, she started teaching him the violin, and he's very brilliant. He's got a great air. He picks it up really fast. He's very intuitive. And he is a bit of, a, of an, as we find out, he's a bit of an existentialist. You know, he's got, every, he's got everybody's number. It's just like these adults, they're all fools here. <laughs> I got this problem and they're trying to fix it or, or either that or they're ignoring it. And he's just like had it, he's fed up. So later on in the book, Sandra Kimbrough invites him to a concert, an outdoor concert in Portland, Maine. She's playing in the Portland Symphony. She invites him to come along. They go hear the symphony and then on the drive back, they have a very difficult conversation where he basically nails her for being just like every other adult that he knows. You know, she's just as bad as them and she kind of has to understand this. And this is the end of that ride where they've kind of worked it out and Pierre's not sullen anymore. He's not sulking and they're having a regular conversation. They just stopped off at Wendy's to have hamburgers or chicken sandwiches or something. And this is what happens next. Okay, so I'm reading. And bear with me. I'm trying to do dialogue here. So, <clears throat> look, Pierre cried, the deer eyes. Indeed, families had gathered on the roadside, their phosphorescent eyes glowing. Better than the gophers from this morning, right? She noted. They were cute, Pierre defended, I suppose. Mrs. Kimber, there's something I can't get out of my head, he said. Gophers? No, nothing like that. Something much weirder. Gophers are pretty weird. No jokes. Once again, she was failing this boy's heart. Tell me she said. Memory, it's not working for me. Your photos and papers, your method? I gave that up a while ago, he said with a brush of his hand, but it was so great. It was stupid. Why stupid, she asked. Because when I used the method and I did remember things, almost all of the memories were about stuff that I didn't really care about. It was all busy work and useless because there's nothing you can do about the past and the future is exactly the same. So why even bother? See, that's what I figured out. I don't want to remember anything and I don't want to worry about what's going to happen next. All it does is make you nervous and sad. On any other day with any other person, Sandra would have argued his point if, as if defending Roe v. Wade in the Supreme Court. But Pierre had landed on the essence of something so obvious. Every person she knew, including herself, was sad, at times intolerably so. Preoccupation with the past and the future seemed to do that to people. There was no possible rebuttal to his beautiful logic. I can't say I disagree, she said. You don't, he asked, surprised. No, what you say is true. The past and the future are just ideas or constructs. Constructs? What's that? He asked. It's a bit complicated to explain, but let me put it another way. 
one of the reasons I like to play the violin is because music isn't in the past or the future. It's right now. And it's okay to feel the sadness in music because in the very next phrase, there's joy, plus lots and lots of other emotions in between. Everything's very immediate in music, and I bet that's one of the reasons you like playing the violin so much, too. We're lucky that way, Pierre. Maybe, he said. The exit merging onto the county row heading toward Oslo appeared. Sandra immediately engaged the high beams as she now drove in pitch dark. For a novice to the area, the brake pedal would have been used overused, but Sandra slid into turns with ease and plenty of gas. And they were at a higher elevation now, so the next leg of the trip would yield good radio reception. You can get something now, she said. Try 98.7. Pierre dialed it in. They caught the end of the Boston Pops concert at Hatch Shell on the Charles River Esplanade, just as all hell was breaking loose with the conclusion of the 1812 Overture. It was one of the first CDs Sandra had given to Pierre, and he'd gotten hooked on Tchaikovsky's bombast. They sang along, Sandra on the violin part, no easy feat, and Pierre with melodies from the brass and winds. There was something heroic and uplifting about their voices saturating the interior of the car, almost as confirmation that music itself could compel two people driving in a car to sing louder and louder, trying to obliterate the orchestra, trying to grab the joy. Then Pierre dropped out, leaving Sandra's voice wailing with an abandon worthy of an embarrassing karaoke moment. He held his stomach, gasping with laughter. That's not fair, Sandra cried. She laughed at herself also. You have a much better voice and, and perfect pitch. Suddenly, Pierre was thrown into her lap and then just as quickly landed back in his seat. The car whirled to the left and she immediately co corrected out of instinct. Then it slammed the other way, so she pumped the brakes, which caused a hard shudder. Pierre braced his arms against the dashboard, then swung back and reached behind to grab onto the headrest. His only sound was, whoa. Sandra felt her body decompensate. Sweat poured out. Her hands slipped off the steering wheel, her arms like limp noodles. A queasy fear caused her belly to do a roller coaster drop. For some reason, her, her nose filled and started to drip. Then, as the 1812 overture was concluding with cymbal crashes and chiming bells, safety glass pellets from the back windshield flew all around the inside of the car. All of this happened within a few seconds, and she could only ride it out while listening to fireworks miles away in Boston until the car came to a stop. So much in such a small passage. Um, that's just, to me, that's an example of the drama that you're able to incorporate into the book and the beauty of the writing you've got little small moments um, with the two of them and the, the essence of their singing along <laughs> with the 1812 Overture. Um, it, it's, it's a beautiful passage, and, um, but yet it doesn't, I didn't want to give away too much about, about what happens in the book. Um, so um, this show is going to be seen on starting March 1st, and your book releases on March Second, Oslo, Maine. Yes. What has it been like to publish a book during the pandemic? 
Oh, what a loaded question. Um, surreal, right? Uh, the good thing, the good thing about uh, the way I'm a writer in the world is, is that I am lucky enough to be able to write all day, right? So I'm writing at least four hours a day generally on whatever I'm working on. I am working on the next novel. So when the pandemic hit, I kind of just kept doing that. And at the same time, I was very aware of my friends in New York were very ill. I lost like over 30 people in New York. Oh, most goodness. Yeah, most of the musicians. And so I felt very guilty that I was not there. But I watched from afar and connected, of course. But I kept writing, right? And so I'm good by myself. I'm alone. And um, it felt... Like, of course, it was happening here because I don't see very many people here. And I wasn't able to enjoy Santa Fe as a city this year as I usually would. But that was okay, right? The publishing thing, you know, of just what's going to happen, what opportunities are not possible to publicize your book. I immediately just changed gears and I just said, I'm not in control of this. And everybody's in this boat. Every author is going through this trauma of my books coming out and like, what's going to happen? How am I going to do this? And so, you know, I just kind of settled into it and I tried not to obsess about something that I had no control over. And that also the other thing is, is that there's so much unbelievable sadness and loss and people's lives being affected in ways that aren't even being covered by the media. You know, people who just, you know, rationing out ramen noodles, you know, and they used to have a job and used to be able to buy things. It's so tragic. It's such a tragedy what's going on right now for so many people. So the perspective is, is also, I'm lucky to be writing. I'm lucky to be, I'm not in an orchestra anymore, so I don't have that problem, you know, which all my musician friends do in New York. And um, I feel fortunate for that. And my heart's breaking at the same time. So I just try to hunker down and understand my position in the whole situation and just continue to try to make art because I do believe that the arts, all the art forms, are what are going to buoy us during this time and after. And I hope we, I hope we all come through it. So, Marsha, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. And um, with that closing, just as in your books, I see redemption there and I see hope um, for the next phase of our lives. And maybe there will be even greater appreciation for the role of the arts in enhancing and making our lives better. So thanks so much for joining me today. And um, I'm here for your next novel as well when you finish that. So uh, thanks again. And Books to Viewers, um, I just want to say that um, I really uh, feel Marsha's tribute. Um, and I hope that you will read her book, Oslo, Maine, her new book, and support all artists and help them uh, get through this time of little Raymond and little income. Thanks for watching, thanks for listening, and have a good night.